Yeah, we have all these people that are downloading the Psychology of Financial Planning podcast from all over the place. Isn't it exciting? I don't, I don't believe it. Well, Who's listening I, to this? We have people from 15 countries and we're getting hundreds what? of downloads already. It's, uh, it's, it's overwhelming. Oh my goodness. All right. Now I'm getting, now I'm getting nervous. I got to watch what I say. You know, the, you know, the, this is great news and we're so happy, right. That everyone's doing this, but there's some, we have some bad news. You know what the bad news is, Brad? Oh, give it to me. <laughs> the bad news is that we're going to do behavioral finance. This episode Oof. is on biases and heuristics, which, which I'm just going to tell our audience right now that we have, Brad and I have the worst attitude about this episode. And we got to do it, but we have complained about doing this episode for, well, the past 20 minutes when we were talking about doing it. <laughs> well, I think, but I also think we we arrived at a solution that makes me excited to talk about it. And what we're not going to do is run through the list of uh, 50 cognitive biases and the academic explanations. And as a practicing financial planner, I got to tell you, it's not that useful. <laughs> that is, that's my biggest issue with the list of biases. Cause I'm, I'm left with, well, what am I supposed to do when I see this in my office? So hopefully we'll talk a little bit about that. You know, and we, and we write about them and they're in the books. We've got all of that covered. So we, so we've got it. That's one of the reasons why we're doing this episode, but you know, Behavioral finance is kind of like the Jerry Seinfeld of financial planning. And what I mean, but first of all, it's not funny. We'll take that out. It isn't so, but the way they're similar is there's just a lot of good observations, but so what? <laughs> is that a good analogy like that, Jerry Seinfeld? Yeah, right. And, and like, for example, um, when I'm teaching this at the university over the years, I will give students the homework assignment of identifying a cognitive bias in their partner the next time that they argue. And then to go ahead and point that out, you know, say, just hold on a second, stop. Right. You know, I, I know I didn't clean the dishes, but I think you have a confirmation bias where you're, you think that I'm not doing um, a good job or not doing my share of work around the house. So um, you're only picking out all the evidence to support that belief. And then my partner, of course, is going to sit back and go, oh, well, thank you. I didn't realize that I had a cognitive bias. Thank you so much. Yeah, right. That's right. Yeah, or better yet, you know, you haven't read a book or gone to the gym in years. You clearly have a status quo bias. <laughs> that is so helpful. You know, so and as a financial you. planner, yeah. What, are you going to offend all your clients by pointing out their biases? I mean, a big part, the big issue with these biases is people aren't aware that they're exhibiting them and it's just integrated in their reality uh, around their money or investing or all of that. So that's where I think the psychology of money started in terms of financial planning, but as a practitioner, it's interesting. It helps explain a lot of bad behaviors people have around money, but it but it gives us very little sort of uh, um, you know tools to do anything about it. So that's that's yeah. what I I hope we're we're um, adding, contributing to the literature, if you will, around what am I supposed to do when I see this in my office. So for the few of you that are still left listening to this episode. <laughs> I did use the word literature, which is never good. Yeah, right. Well, I mean, away. we just told everybody every reason why they shouldn't listen to the rest of this, <laughs> but that's okay. We're, we're going to keep going. So let's start with this. So when we, when we think about behavioral finance, we think about heuristics and biases. And 
a heuristic is basically it's basically just kind of a mental shortcut. It helps us in problem solving. It helps us kind of in a, a lens of our judgment. Um, they they tend to be called rules of thumb, right? And they're they're really helpful when it comes to limiting our what we call cognitive load, limiting our attention, limiting our 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 cognitive resources. However, they can lead to what we would say are some inaccurate conclusions, right? And a bias, on the other hand, is something that's a, it's a, it's some sort of systematic pattern that deviates from what is objective, what is the norm, right? In our judgment, all right? So we create this kind of subjective reality from what's actually going on, okay? And for the most part, a lot of these are, that, that are in the book and whatnot, we, most of them are biases, right? There are some that are heuristics, but for the most part, we focus more on, on the biases because the biases are the ones that are the, are kind of the most prevalent when it comes to individuals. So we started with that. So why don't we dive in? We're going to do the first one. We're only going to do four. Okay. And the, and the first one we're going to do is the status quo bias. So the status quo bias is basically our, our desire to maintain what is our current state of something. So we've talked to, uh, in the in the first episode, we talked about this notion of us being inherently lazy as human beings, that that's kind of our instinct. And so we kind of desire to have the status quo. We kind of desire to have the same thing. Change is, in some cases, it's inherently or instinctually scary for us in some way, shape, or form. So the status quo basically is just maintaining what is. Now, Brad, for for practice, there's lots of things that we can do to kind of nudge or help individuals from the status quo, right? Right. And, you know, it, it takes a tremendous amount of energy to change and you have to be motivated to do it. You got to think it's important. You got to have confidence that you can pull it off and you just have to be ready to pull the trigger. And so we, we have a, a tendency towards the status quo. And this can be a problem when you're wanting a client to take action, but if you can get them motivated and they're ready to do it, you can really harness that status quo. This is where automation becomes such a powerful wealth building tool, because if you can get people to just set up a plan, um, make those automatic contributions from their paycheck or from their checking account, people have a tendency to just leave it that way. It takes a lot of mental effort to kind of go back and say, oh, um, I don't really want to retire. I mean, I'm not sure what you would have to tell yourself to like stop yourself from contributing to your kid's 529 plan or something. But basically you can harness that status quo bias by putting actions into place that further your financial goals and chances are you're just going to leave them there. So there's also an element there of like, like we can also handle elements of friction, right? So we can, you talked about automation, which would be like eliminating friction, but we can also add friction for certain things too, that, that maybe we are in the status quo of unhealthy behaviors. And so we can, we can add friction to um, prevent ourselves from doing certain things like watching TV and eating at the same time or whatever it might be, something like that. So friction, and we spent a lot of time in the book on this and, and even a lot of time in the, um, in the, in the, uh, in the certificate talking about this idea of friction, which is really powerful when it comes to clients. 
So this right, is the part. So, this is the part. You know, we script this stuff out, folks. But so this is the part where Brad's supposed to talk about confirmation oh, bias. Okay. Oh, yeah. And I thought okay. I thought that he was going to do it without me saying, "Hey, Brad, would you like to talk about confirmation bias?" I need I need a lot of cues. I just need somebody cueing me all the time. Um, yeah. So confirmation bias, and I, I talked about that a little bit in my example of my wife's. Um, you know, just totally misunderstanding. You know, um, all my contributions around the house and seeking information that confirms her existing belief that I'm not pulling my weight and ignoring uh, any sort of evidence to, that would, uh, you know, disconfirm that. And we are all prone to this confirmation bias. It's actually something that I actively try to battle within myself. And if you want to see examples of confirmation bias, just go to Twitter. Twitter is just like a horrific place of confirmation bias where nobody's listening. Nobody's has an open mind at all. And they're all just seeking out evidence to prove themselves right. And it is such a seductive thing to do. And it's so easy to do uh, because we have Google. So all you need to do is just, um, you know, Google the, what you, whatever it is you want to prove, and you'll be able to find scientists and peer reviewed papers that will demonstrate that you're correct and everyone else is wrong. And it's very, very challenging um, cognitive bias that that afflicts all of us and it really hinders our growth. And obviously it has a big impact on our financial behaviors too, where for example, you might um, be a huge fan of some of those like darling stocks. I'm not going to name them, but you ask like brand names and um, you know, you might get some evidence or, or some information that comes your way that this particular company is not doing so well, or, or the um, you know the prospects for the future aren't so great. But you you are streaming this into your house, their platform. You take their kids, your kids there every year to go on the rides. I'm not naming names, um, but you know you have such an affinity for it, and you're so connected to it that you just you you just sort of push away any disconfirming evidence. So I think this is one that's actually really fun on a personal development level to try to challenge and notice when when it pops up into your own mind. But we certainly see it play out with clients all the time. You're talking about IBM. How we take kids <laughs> on the ride to IBM is what you're talking about. I'm sure that's what it was, right? This is this is dangerous. This is why we need to script things more so I don't get off script. That's <laughs> exactly right. Uh, so I'm going to do sunk cost fallacy. So sunk cost fallacies that we're making decisions obviously are, are, are irrational, but we're focusing on our past investment. And instead of thinking about what our present and future cost and payoff is going to be. So we have invested a certain amount of money or a certain amount of resources in something, and it may or may not be going well, but we're going to stick with it because we say, you know what, I've invested in this, I'm going to keep going. Uh, people use this, a great example of that is, uh, well, relationships are a great example of that. We're taking out a financial planning. Well, you know, I've invested three years in this and yes, I'm absolutely miserable, but I've invested three years. I'm going to stay, I'm going to stay with this. Or if you, um, if you go on a vacation and for whatever reason you've spent, you've paid money up front and there's no chance of it getting better for whatever reason, but you say, you know what, I paid for this and you stick with it, even though you're absolutely miserable. That is, those are two examples of, of sunk cost fallacy. We see that in the market too, right, Brad? Right. And, you know, a lot of these cognitive biases sort of stack on each other. And so one that is related to sunk cost fallacy is loss aversion. And that, that's just wrapped up in there. Like we don't want to admit defeat. We don't want to experience the pain and regret and shame of making mistakes. 
Uh, and we want to feel a sense of pride. And so it's just much easier. And again, this relates to status quo too. It's much easier to just keep doubling down on the status quo or something we're really attached to. We don't want to experience that pain. And some of the studies that, that we've done have found that people who have higher net worth have less of that loss aversion tendencies. So it's something they're able to battle in themselves, battle with themselves. And um, we also see it play out where people are doubling down on a failing business. You know, you know, if you look at it objectively, you're like, hey, look, sorry, but this industry's dying. You know, um, the automobile's out and you're still making horses and, and carriages, carriages for horses. But it's like you've invested so much of your life. You've maybe even sacrificed time with your family. I mean, th this is where the sunk cost can be really, really powerful. And it's something we're all vulnerable to. And, you know, I've, I've invested 10 minutes in this podcast episode, listening to Brad and Charles. And I'm like, you know what? I, I got to see the end of this. I need to see what happens at the end. So I'm going to... Oh, the good stuff is coming. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. Um, Another one right. we see... Another one we see, Charles, you don't need to cue me on this, is uh, mental accounting. Mental accounting. I talked about this in the last episode when I talked about um, helping a client take a more rational perspective on their portfolio performance by sticking their equities in one bucket or mental bucket or one visual graph compared to their fixed income. So you can see that, hey, look, it, it's just the equity portion that's taken a hit or, or you know, vice versa, depending on what's happening. But basically with mental accounting, we're placing different values on money, even though a dollar is a dollar. So this is something that can hurt us where, for example, we have accounts all over the place and we're not realizing that we're, we have too much money in one particular asset class because we're looking at each of them separately. But again, it, this can actually be really helpful when you set up mental accounts that um, are you're attached to, you're emotionally attached to. So whether it's a saving for a new car or a you know, European family vacation or your kid's you know, retirement fund. You can attach, you can have an emotional attachment to those. Now, a dollar in, in that plus your checking account is actually the same, but you're going to place much more value and attachment on a dollar in an account that is attached to a uh, powerful, motivating goal for you. So it's something that we use all the time as financial planners, and it's something that can be harnessed to our clients' benefit. And so, you know, those are the four we're, we're covering for the podcast. And I would just say we, we spent an enormous amount of time on this chapter in the book and we're spending an enormous amount of time in the, and we're going to talk about the other stuff here in a second, but we did spend a lot of time on it because, because we tried to do what we did here, which was try to make all of these relevant to practice. And we didn't, you know, our books and whatever are not a list of definitions for the sake of having definitions. Some people write books that way, but we don't. And so we really tried to make it contextual and and whatever. So it, it really was a challenge for us in, in in working on this segment. Yeah. And so I'll I, I want I I'd be remiss if I didn't give our listeners like what am I supposed to do when I see this? You know, I already told you not to tell your client that they're exhibiting a you know sunk cost fallacy. I don't think that's gonna go very well. I would take an incredibly open-minded person to be like, oh really, am I? Thank you so much. Um, that's just not gonna happen. But what I find to be extremely effective in intervening in, in just about anything. Um, and even using the example, um, and I, using this example with my wife, although she would never, ever disparage me in any way. Um, but, you know, if she was saying that, you know, she's not feeling like I'm doing enough around the house, she might, there might be elements of truth in that. 
if, if we're being honest. Um, and there might be elements of truth in your client's cognitive bias. Like there's a reason that they're bringing this to light. And so I think approaching that with, with delicacy and sort of honoring this, this belief that they have based on their experience. But what, what happens is so many of these beliefs are, are subconscious for us. We're not very aware of them. And so I think the most powerful thing an advisor can do is to basically just mirror back what the client is saying. And so, for example, if they are really attached to a losing investment, you know, I might reflect that back. You know, it's like you've you've been in into this particular position for 15 years. It's something that means a lot to you. Um, and it you can't even imagine sort of selling it. Is that right? Now, I just basically repeated back what they said to me, but it, I'm I'm holding up a mirror to them. And if somebody said that to me, I I would already start to reconsider my attachment to that because I don't, you know, because I know rationally that I, that I shouldn't be emotionally attached to a particular investment. And just by you mirroring back what I said, it's it's an incredibly powerful intervention that gives me the opportunity to sort of challenge my own attachment to that belief. And that we'll, we talk about that a lot, Charles, in our work with clients. And, and as you mentioned in our books and workshops and everything, that the power of our ability to help somebody change just by being present for what's happening for them by listening very intently to what they're saying and providing a mirror for them and repeating back to them what they're saying. So they had to think about it. They had to put it into words. They heard themselves say it. We are now um, very gently and, and honoring them, just repeating back. This is what I think I thought you said incredibly powerful intervention because we have a natural um, propensity as human beings towards growth and towards healing and towards change. And look no further than, you know, your body marshalling its resources to scab up a cut and send white blood cells there. I mean, this happens on a physiological level where when there's something that's out of sync or there's something that's not working well, our body has a natural tendency to self-correct. The same thing happens for us psychologically. The problem is so many of us are just living in our own internal experience and we're not sharing it. And when we, when um, that's, I think the power of having a relationship with a financial planner who's a skilled listener is just by having that relationship and by being present and listening and reflecting, you are providing your clients with a tremendous opportunity for them to grow and to change. Yeah, we spend an enormous amount of time on, on this element of listening and everything that we're doing. And, and it's been, you know, Ever since we've actually, ever since word got out that we were doing the book, it's been the, the response from firms and advisors about wanting more has been, I will say, overwhelming. I think overwhelming is just, it would be an overstatement, but a lot of, a lot have come forward saying, you know, we want workshops or we want, you know, more education in this area. And so, you know, one thing that, that we want to mention is if you go to psychologyoffinancialplanning.com, you can see our, are not only we have a free one credit class that has one uh, CE for CFP professionals, and we've had several hundred people go through that. Um, we've got a, a, a certificate that's coming out on September 6th that we're working with lots of universities on on um, elements of that and, and lots of firms who are interested in, in uh, having their people go through our program. It's kind of exciting, would you say, Brad? Absolutely. Um, and I, I get kind of passionate about um, I mean, what I'm in this for too, is I, I really do feel like so many clients, you know, the only experience they have with a professional is really going to listen to them. It might be their financial planner. And it's, it's the thing that people are most stressed about it. Money intersects in all these areas of our lives that matter so much to us. And so I I'm super excited about our profession evolving. And I know a lot of really good financial planners 
are really excellent listeners and are real powerful force in their client's life. And um, that's what really gets me excited, Charles, is, is the opportunity for us to up our skill set and to really embrace that more holistic role in helping our clients around their financial health. Yeah. I mean, I can remember texting back and forth when a couple of firms had contacted us and we were really getting into this space that I can remember. I think you said it. I mean, I'd like to think that I said it, but I think you did, was that, you know, the hopefully the millions of people we're going to reach for, through going through working with thousands of advisors who are going to work for, with thousands of clients, hopefully, that's incredible impact for us. And, and so it's been really exciting so far. So check out psychologyoffinancialplanning.com for all those different things that we're doing. Um, and you can email us at scifinplan at gmail.com. And I know we've got emails saying that's a terrible email address, and it is. Um, but that's the email address we're using right now because Brad and I both check it. And so we have it. And so it's PSYFinplan at gmail.com. I mean, I think, I mean, I love all of our listeners, I'm sure, Brad. But if you email us and say that you don't, the email address is too difficult, aren't you kind of like, you're, you're, you're basically suggesting, you're kind of, you're kind of countering your own argument, I would think. But this just me. I mean, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to, you know, alienate any listeners, but it just seems like, you know, come on. Charles, you have a status quo bias around our email address. You have I a do. confirmation bias, sunk cost. I mean, you pretty much got them all. <laughs> and maybe a little bitterness. I don't know, but uh, that's, that's exactly right. Um, and if you're watching on our YouTube channel, you know, today's uh, baseball day because Brad's wearing a Tigers hat. Uh, and I'm wearing a Mets hat. You could, uh, if you're listening just on the podcast, I'm sure you could probably already can tell that from our voices. But uh, it's baseball day here at the Psychology of Financial Planning podcast. You can get the Psychology of Financial Planning podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Audible, iHeartRadio, and Google Play. Uh, and the Google Play's new. Happy to add those folks. And if you get the show through Apple Podcasts, we hope that you'll leave us a review. Uh, and the audio engineer for the Psychology of Financial Play podcast is our friend Tim Dolbear. Next time think, we're talking, what's that? I Brad? think I saw one review. That's why I I can't believe that we're in like 15 countries already. So it's it's kind of incredible. We have we have a review. I didn't know we even we do a- we have a review and and it was a good one. It was five stars. I think that's as high as you can go, right? Yeah, so thank you, our reviewer. I, we should go I'm find not. out who that person is and send him some swag. Do we have any swag? We should get some swag. I don't know. Yeah, but it, it was my mom. I'm sure was my it? mom was the one that left that review. That's, that's good for her. Was, I don't actually, believe, I don't believe your mom extra. gave you five stars. I don't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> True. Uh, <laughs> next week, Brad, we're, uh, next episode, we're going to talk about getting the client to take action, which I think is one of our favorite topics in our in our new badge coming out. Would you agree? I think so. I think it's uh, it's what it's what the people want, Charles what the people want. Well, with that, thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time. Catch you later.